So yeah, it's uh, it's it's still morning to me. It's just it's habit, right? You know, um, Genesis chapter twenty nine. Happy Father's Day to the fathers here this morning. We have a very uh, special passage for you this morning, talking about fatherhood and uh, fathering lots of children. <laughs> um, we have a, we have a few larger larger families in our home, but none are in our church, but none as big as uh, as Jacob's for sure. Uh, so, but we're going to look at uh, really not so much a father today, but we're going to look at him fathering a lot of people today. <laughs> so uh, maybe it fits with Father's Day. I don't know. This morning, uh, I've been really kind of excited as I've been uh, reading this passage. <laughs> you may be going. Excited? <laughs> I, I wasn't getting that much excitement out of this passage as I was reading it. Uh, it's kind of a weird passage. It's, uh, again, a lot of these narratives, especially when we're dealing with uh, people, you know, having issues, <laughs> it's, it's, it's often hard to figure out, okay, what are you trying to show us from this passage, God? And, and of course, you know, we've talked about what we, what we desire is to look first and foremost at God, how he is revealed in this passage. And so I, I'm, I think we're going to do that this morning. At least that's going to be my, my goal this morning. Um, and when I came at it from that perspective, I walked away from this passage actually really happy <laughs> and really hopeful. And so I know a lot of times, I don't know, I don't know if you guys feel this way, or at least I feel like this a lot of times when I'm done preaching, I, I don't know if I just... If I, this is just the way that I am. I tend to focus on the negative aspects of things too much. I don't know, but I feel like a lot of times after my sermon, there's like this weight <laughs> of whatever it is. And, and part of that's good because we, we're dealing with a weighty subject, the Word of God, right? But um, this morning, hopefully, we'll walk away maybe feeling a little bit uh, more hopeful than perhaps we, we might would at other times. Um, the title of my message this morning is... God loves lemons. God loves lemons. Uh, I'm not talking about the fruit. As I literally picked, I, I came up with that this morning. I, I didn't have a, a sermon title, and we have our notes in here now, you know, and I was like, I need a sermon title, I need a sermon title. So I'm going through, I'm flipping through the thesaurus, you know, trying to find something that would work, you know, to fit with, to fit with my other points, you know. And the word lemon popped, and I was like, that's good. I like that. God loves lemons. That's a, that's a, that's a good title. God loves lemons. Um, obviously, we're not talking about the fruit. If I were to say lemon, what's the first thing that you probably think of besides the fruit? Car, car right? Uh, dealing with car troubles. Usually it's a used car, something that's been around for a while. Hopefully it's not a new car that's a lemon. Uh, but sometimes it happens. Uh, but when we think of a limit, we think of a car and having car troubles, and it's something that's just a money pit. You're constantly, you know, paying out to get this thing fixed until you finally decide it's not making any lemonade. You need to get rid of that thing, right? And so you get rid of it. But but we think of car issues, and um, even this morning, if you don't know, uh, my wife and I are separated um, for a week, and they are up in Michigan or on their way to Michigan. And uh, to the cabin up there, they're going to be with my parents, and my boss did not think that it would be good for me to be away, so I don't get to go with them this time. But they're going to uh, be gone from me for the rest of this week, 
And, um, and of course, you know, we had the, the ritual leaving of the house and then coming back to the house because I forgot to pack something in there for them and then leaving the house again. Um, so thankfully they actually left at the time they planned since they had left earlier <laughs> uh, and it worked out. But not too long after they left, I get a text message from my wife. Well, the cruise control stopped working. I'm just like, oh, man. And we've been talking about this, man. I mean, it's, it was a great deal. It was an awesome thing the Lord really provided for us. Um, very cheap, hardly any miles on it, but it's still a 2002. <laughs> it's a pretty old van, you know. Um, so it's got some age, even if not the miles necessarily on it. Um, and so we've been talking, you know, man, should we think about, you know, saving up and getting another vehicle, et cetera. And then she, you know, yesterday there was a problem with the door not wanting to slide shut because the little, you know, wire thing got broken. And so now you have to fix it before you shut the door. And, um, and then she hits me up with this cruise control is broken. So me being the perfect husband that I am, straight, went straight to Google and, you know, typed in 2002 Town & Country, cruise stopped. <laughs> and uh, found a really interesting forum post uh, that said all you have to do, what happens is the buttons over time get, you know, sticky and stuck. And uh, they, they, you know, really need to clean them out so that the contact is, is working correctly. And, um, but in lieu of that, for now, just smack it. I was like, that's funny. But I kept reading down, and person after person is like, that's funny. I tried this, and it worked. So I said, smack the steering wheel. <laughs> this is what I'm reading. And two seconds later, I get their response. I can't believe that worked. Hilarious. <laughs> so it's still, it's still happening intermittently when she stops. But every, just smack it. And I get here this, I get here, uh, this afternoon, and... And she, she called me just to you know check in, and, and she goes, "By the way, that's it's not working anymore." And then right while we were on the phone, it worked again. <laughs> so um, you know, lemons, right? We're, it's not necessarily lemon. God has blessed us with a vehicle that has lasted us uh, a good number of years. It's been uh, pretty good most of the time, so it's it's not a lemon. But all of us probably at one time in our life have dealt with a lemon. Um, you know, they're frustrating, right? It's. It's, it's annoying. We don't want to deal with it. We just want to get rid of it. It's, it's a money pit. It's no fun, right? It's, it's unwanted. It's things that, you know, we want to avoid that. We don't want lemons. We want to keep them out of our lives. And yet, when it comes to people, the statement is true. God loves lemons. And in the passage this morning, we're going to look at a few lemons, we're going to look at a few people that we've been talking about. We know we've got Jacob, who is a deceiver. He's uh, gone along with his mother's uh, attempt to manage God's plan for him. And, uh, and it's cost him his ability to live at home. He's had to leave uh, to go and, and under the auspices of finding a wife. Um, and so he's left his everything that he knows. So he's you know out here as a deceiver. He's now been deceived by his uncle um, and given a wife that he did not want, who, who was his lemon, right? He didn't want her. Um, 
he, he finds out that this is the woman that he married and he is not happy. And apparently, I don't know, maybe, maybe Laban didn't want her either. I don't know. I mean, he blames the custom, but I don't know. I mean, I, th- I have a feeling that the custom was just a, a, an excuse. I think he just didn't think he was going to be able to marry her off. So he, he figured out a way to do it. Um, so I, I don't think this is my, me personally, scripture doesn't tell us. I don't think Laban probably wanted her either. Um, so we have a Leah who is unwanted by either her father or her husband. Um, and then we've got Rachel who is wanted, but is barren, is not able to have children. And she's, you know, we're going to get into this in a minute, but she has this fight with her husband about it, who, I mean, only so much you can do, you know? So, I mean, we have, we have some lemons here. We have some people that we've talked about the fact that they don't deserve, they don't deserve anything that God is blessing with them with. But yet, God loves them. And we're going to see kind of three categories of people here in this passage as we look at it this morning. But I'll, I'll start here with the big idea. The big idea is because God is sovereign, He delights in using the undesirable, imperfect, and broken to bring about his plan and maximize his glory. Let me read that again. Because God is sovereign, he delights in using the undesirable, imperfect, and broken to bring about his plan and maximize his glory. As we see, not specifically only in this passage, but as we look at at where this passage takes us in the future, we see that God is using these undesirable, imperfect, and broken people to fulfill his plan and to bring himself glory. And it's easy for us to look at these people and be like, (laughs) I don't know how God manages to deal with people like that. You know, and, and, and if we're not careful, we can start looking down on people in Scripture like this and being, like, and being you know, Debbie Downers. I, these people are just horrible. Obviously, we're much better people as Christians than Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Laban and all these people in the Old Testament. Um, it's easy for us to kind of have that attitude, is it not? Um, I mean, how many times have you read about the Israelites, you know, dis- you're going through that cycle, you know? God saves them and they disobey and he judges them and he saves them and he, you know, they repent and all, you know, that's like, and we sit here and we kind of laugh at them. Like, you dummies. <laughs> and yet, if we were honest, do we not go through that same cycle ourselves? If not weekly, if not daily, weekly, monthly, annually, we all go through that cycle because we're all imperfect beings. We're all people who in our own strength can't do anything to please God. But God still delights in using people like us. I'm going to lump us in with these people here. God still delights in using people like us. The first point this morning is that God delights in using the undesirable. God delights in using the undesirable. Obviously, you probably know where I'm going with this one. Who are we talking about? Leah, right? The undesirable. Her husband didn't want her. Um, You know, he he kind of did his duty (laughs) at the beginning of their marriage. But, uh, I mean, he he really is spending his time with the woman that he loves, right? The one that he wants, which is Rachel. 
That's who he's spending his time with here, at least at the beginning. And, uh, and we see this even in the scripture passage right here in, in verse 31. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was what? Was what? That's a pretty strong word. I mean, that's stronger than the word I used. Hated. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Have you ever really thought about this relationship in that way? I mean, how often do we read over scripture and read through words and know the stories and, and, and gloss over things? But that's a strong word that Leah was hated. This wasn't just Jacob being like, eh, I don't really, you know, I don't care for her. Hated. I mean, I can understand maybe to some degree there would be hatred because she obviously was part of the deception, right? I mean, she, she was not kicking and screaming in this apparently. We don't have anything in scripture that tells us that she was. I don't know if maybe she didn't have a choice, <laughs> you know, in all of this. But in some, to some degree, I can certainly see Joseph or J- Jacob um, kind of seeing her as, as the enemy in this. This is partially your fault. It wasn't just your dad. You were, you were complicit in this, right? You were part of this. And so scripture says that she is hated. That's more than just, uh, that's, my, that's my other wife. That's an active word. That there, there, is, there is real back and forth going on between Jacob and Leah to the point that God records it as hatred. That's what Leah is dealing with here. You know, we, we maybe like to soften things a little bit sometimes and think, well, she ended up with six sons. I mean, she couldn't, it couldn't have been that bad for her, right? <laughs> she had six, six sons and a daughter that we know of, but she was hated. It was, it was out of obligation. We see that later on when she has to bribe him, basically, pay for him. You know, it was out of obligation that he has a relationship with her, not because he loved her. And so we have Leah, who is undesirable, to say the least. To use the scriptural word, she's hated. And yet, what does God do? We see in this first passage here in chapter 29 that God blesses her with four sons, right? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, right? Those are the only four that I'm going to remember in order, so I'm doing it right now. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, right? God blesses her with those things. Why? It says specifically, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So God saw the way that, Je- that Jacob, I can't want to say Joseph, I'm sorry if I don't catch myself, that Jacob is treating Leah and does something about it. He shuts the womb of Rachel and opens the womb of Leah. And he blesses her with four sons. And uh, Eric kind of mentioned this last week, but who are these four sons? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at three of them. Um, 
Simeon is involved in, in the future, but, um, but not, as, not as extensively, or in my opinion, as, as well. <laughs> um, he just got locked up in prison in, in Egypt. I mean, that's about it that I could really find. So we're not going to focus on Simeon a whole lot. But we have these other three sons that God uses um, to, to give to this undesirable woman, this unwanted woman, to, that produce, to produce these key men in the future of the nation of Israel. God used this undesirable, unwanted woman to produce key men in the future of the nation of Israel. Let's look at Reuben. Anything stand out to you about Reuben and what you know of what's coming up ahead? Do what? Sells off Joseph? It wasn't Reuben. Yeah, he kept them alive. They were going to kill him. They were saying, let's get rid of this dreamer. Right? And Reuben said, hey, guys, wait, whoa, hang on. Tell you what, you know, let's cool down, throw him in this pit. And, and, and it may be that he was, you know, I'm, I'm preaching ahead now. It may be that he was, uh, he was thinking, you know, he, he was communicating to them, let's leave him in the pit and let, let nature take its course. He'll die eventually. Right? Let's not kill him ourselves. Um, but he said, let's, let's put him in the pit. And scripture tells us that he planned then to go back and save him and rescue him and make sure that he was okay. So Reuben was instrumental in Joseph being alive and around when that Ishmaelite caravan came through. Reuben was instrumental in ensuring that Joseph gets to Egypt. On the positive side, his brothers were effective in getting him there on the negative side. <laughs> and they're the ones that sold him out. But Reuben, Reuben was there to ensure that Joseph, to ensure that the future of Israel was intact. Because what's going to happen in the few years after that? Famine. And they're, they're probably not prepared. Egypt probably is not prepared for them to come down. Have, is Joseph, is Joseph is not there. Of course, God is sovereign, you know. We know that he would take care of things. But God used this man, this son of Leah, to ensure that it happened the way that it happened. Levi. What's important about Levi? Hmm? Priests, Priest, right? You know any famous descendants from Levi? Aaron and his brother, Moses. Pretty important people in Israel's history, are they not? Levi, whose descendants would become the priests. Levi's descendants would be the line of priests that would stand as the intercessors between God and his people. They would produce Moses and Aaron who would lead his people out of bondage after 400 years. Pretty important guy in the history of Israel, our history, the future of Israel at this point. Judah, Eric mentioned this one. What's so big about Judah? Yeah, the line of David and ultimately Christ. 
So this unwanted, hated woman, God chooses to produce some of the most influential and important men in the future of his chosen people. From this woman that is hated. God delights in using the undesirable. Any other undesirable people in, uh, in the Bible that God used? I mean, if we're going to say that God is doing this out of this passage, we should probably see if he does it anywhere else, right? Anybody think of anything else? I just thought of some off the top of my head. Um, I didn't really do a whole lot of searching because... Okay, the, the harlot, the, the prostitute in Jericho, Rahab. Yep, we're going to mention her later here in a minute too. But yeah, I mean, why would, why would God use her? <laughs> I mean, she's not even an Israelite and she's a harlot. I mean, that's pretty bad, right? Yeah, that's an undesirable person. Um, any others you can think of? Ruth and Naomi. Ruth is not even an Israelite. She's a Moabite woman, right? That the, that the Israelites would look down on. And yet she is in the line of Christ. She becomes the wife of Boaz. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think of one that's even like uh, David. You think David was undesirable? You remember the story of Samuel going to crown a king? Was David the first in line? David wasn't even there. He wasn't even thought of important enough to be there for Samuel. He was out with the sheep. He's basically just one of the, one of the servants. He's too young. Certainly you can't be, can't be thinking about David. Not when I've got this big strapping young man right here. The oldest. I can't remember his name off the top of my hand. You know, surely this is the one God's going to choose. No, God chooses the one that didn't even get invited to the party. David, you think of the disciples. Any undesirable characters in the group of disciples that Jesus chose? Yeah, we got some fishermen. You know, we've got a tax collector. We've got a thief, <laughs> basically, Judas. Um, yeah, there's some, there's some undesirable characters in that group. Who's the first people that God proclaimed the coming of his son to? Shepherds. And what did they do? They went away glorifying and praising God for everything that they had seen and heard. Spreading the message that the Messiah was God delights in using undesirable people. And if we're honest, in reality, are we not really undesirable? Some of us may look a little bit better than others. Some of us may have uh, special talents, you know, that, that we in the world, you know, lift up a little bit higher. But in the end, really, are any of us that desirable people? Spouses don't answer. I mean, when you start living with somebody, you learn pretty quickly a lot of undesirable things about them, do you not? <laughs> We're all really undesirable people, especially when it comes 
to spiritual things. Is there anything good in us that should cause God to think that we are worthy of him using us? And yet he chooses to do so. Is that not an amazing thing? That God delights in using the undesirable. Not only does he delight in using the the undesirable, he delights in using the imperfect. We we talked about this for weeks now, ever since we met Abraham. (laughs) God, God delights in choosing and using imperfect people. Jacob is not a very perfect person. Leah and Rachel are not perfect people. It's interesting. You have to be very careful about um, what you read, even when it comes to um, to biblical things. I was sitting in my in my living room this last week, and I looked at my bookshelf, and I saw this really thick book that I had completely forgotten I even had on the book of Genesis. We've been preaching on the book of Genesis for a year now, and I completely forgot I even had this book in my library. Um, of course, I've been moving a little bit, you know, so you got to give me a little credit there. Right? Um, but, <laughs> but I completely forgot about this book, so I was like, well, hey, there's another resource. I'll open up and take a look. And I'm reading through this, this commentary of sorts. Um, I wouldn't quite give him that high of a praise. <laughs> but I'm reading through this commentary, and it's just interesting the things that people decide are true that Scripture doesn't say. And I'm reading through, and, and he's talking about Leah and, you know, and, and the fact that she's hated and all those things. And he comes to this, this line, and he basically says, Leah was a godly woman. And I went back, and I reread the passage. <laughs> and I said, Bob, I don't think you're right. <laughs> I'm not sure where you're getting godly woman from this passage. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that she wasn't a godly woman, but scripture certainly does not paint her as a godly woman. What do we see here? We see two sisters. First of all, we see, we see a messed up marriage in the very beginning because Jacob is already married to two people. We've seen this before, and we know that this doesn't work, right? Who have we seen this with? Abraham, right? We've got Abraham has Sarah and Hagar. Now, he also marries two other women later on at the end of his life. Um, We don't know much about that marriage relationship. But that was not a good relationship. Having two wives, not a great relationship. But then you add on to that the fact that these two wives are sisters. Now, my two daughters are pretty well spread apart in age. But I have a feeling that um, Leah and Rachel probably ran into a lot of the same issues that mine do. There's a little bit of backfighting, backbiting, and, and a little bit of, you know, maybe some unkind words here and there. Um, little jealousy, little anger. You know, sometimes that happens. But these are two grown women who are stuck in a marriage with one man 
and their sisters. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine basically taking your entire life that you've spent with your sister, probably having the normal tips that you do, and then finding out, I get to do this for the rest of my life. Yay. That's a, that's a, great, that's a great family situation, is it not? So these are not, these are not perfect people. I, I would certainly not go so far as to say that they were godly people. Um, if you find somewhere in Scripture where it points back and says that Leah was godly, please let me know. I will be happy to recant that. Um, but at least from this passage, I don't, I don't get Leah or Rachel being a godly person. What do we see? We see, we see animosity. We see hate. We see um, bickering. We see one-upmanship. Do we not? Let's look at, let's look at this process here. We've got... We've got a family of multiple wives. Both of those wives are, are sisters. The two main wives are sisters. Um, they don't seem to be very godly women. In fact, later on, we're going to find out that there's some idolatry uh, leaking its way in. You know, just a little, you know, preview for coming, coming attraction. Um, but there's clear signs of struggle here in this, in this relationship. We see Leah at the beginning in verses 31 through 34. Um, What's her, what's her goal? What's her focus? Yeah, she, she wants more children. Why though? She wants her husband to love her. Right? Now, I will grant you that they both do a really good job of praising God when they get what they want. I will grant that. They both do a really good job of praising God when he gives them something that they desire, something that they long for, something that they think is going to solve the problem. They do that. But when you look at this relationship, there is, there is nothing godly about this relationship and the interaction between these people. And, and we do not really have a clear understanding of how this uh, this life was lived. Because when you think about this, we read through this in about five minutes. How long does it take a baby to get born? Ten months, you know, something like that, somewhere around there. All right? And we know we've got four children from Leah. So you're looking at Let's just say they're shotgun children and, you know, one right after another, a little under four years, right? So, but that's four years. What we read in five minutes is years and years of this back and forth, of this one-upmanship, of this uh, longing to, to have my needs, what I desire to be fulfilled. That's what's going on here. Leah, especially through the first three children, what's her response? Now Jacob's going to love me. Finally, I have something to, to keep him pinned down, <laughs> something to keep him here so that I can, I can feel wanted, so that I can feel loved. That's really her focus. And of course, we see, you know, Rachel doesn't like that. 
what happens at the beginning of chapter 30. She starts blaming Jacob. Hey, this is your fault. I, I see Leah over here. She's got four children. You, know, you, want, you have to wonder, this conversation had to come up more than once. Um, that's just my opinion. You know, but this, this probably wasn't just a single explosion. <laughs> maybe, the, maybe the one time was, was, uh, was recorded for us. But, you know, Leah's got four kids already by you, and I have none. What's, what's your problem, Jacob? And Jacob's just like, it's not my fault. You know, I have four children. Yeah, it's not my problem. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's not me. It's God, right? God is the one that's not allowing you. Am I God? Am I able to, to open up your womb? And she attacks him and she says, give me children or what? Or I shall die. I don't, I don't know if that was like a, an actual, you know, like suicidal comment or if that was just, you know, her being, uh, you know, a little crazy at the time. But that's pretty, that's pretty stark, is it not? This relationship with her sister has degraded to the point that now she's attacking her husband for something that he has absolutely no control over. I assume that they had a pretty good relationship up until, you know, Leah started having children. And maybe because, I mean, obviously she had four children. He was spending some time with her. Maybe because of that, he, he, he was spending time with her. Maybe she was getting what she was hoping for out of this deal. And Rachel sees this and she's, you know, losing time with the, with the man that she loves. The man that cherishes her. Maybe, maybe he doesn't cherish her quite as much as he used to. And she blames him and he says, it's not me. Am, am I God? Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And things get even more nasty from there. And we've seen this before, obviously, with, uh, with Sarah. It, it seems to have been a very odd tradition in our minds um, for a woman who is barren to give a servant to her husband to have some sort of ceremonial child because of that. And so uh, Rachel says, well, if I can't have my own natural children, I'm going, to, I'm going to make sure that I have children this way. And so she introduces a third woman into the mix. Because, hey, that'll fix everything, right? More women. She adds, she adds another woman to the mix. And, it, and it's interesting, she is a wife. Now, they, it seems like they were uh, maybe a lower class of wife because they were still uh, under the, the women who were the actual wives. But, um, but still a wife of Jacob. And she bears him two sons. Right, I think it's two sons, and uh, and then of course Leah cannot be outdone because she realizes I'm I'm done. I'm not having any more children. So you know now Rachel's got a couple kids uh, to her name. So I've got to I got to crank this back up. You know we got to get we got to make some headway here. Get ahead of Rachel. So she gives her servant. 
to Jacob, adding a fourth wife to this scenario. Just horrible. We've got eight kids now, if I'm counting correctly. Eight children. So we're getting closer to a decade. Closer to a decade of this rivalry, of this back and forth. And then we get this really interesting story. Reuben goes out in the field. And we're assuming he's maybe, he's a, he's a kid. He's six, seven, somewhere down, around there probably. Um, he goes out in the field and he finds these uh, this fruit, these mandrakes. And he brings them home to Leah. And Rachel sees them. And there are a lot of, I'll let you go read them if you want to, a lot of things that people assume and find interesting about the mandrakes, but I don't care about the mandrakes. But Rachel wants these mandrakes for whatever reason. And she makes this deal with her sister for her husband's services. I mean, you're going to tell me that these are godly women? That's just not what I walk away from this passage with. These are sinful, selfish people. These are imperfect people. All of these things that go on in this relationship, it's not just a five minute back and forth. It is year after year after year of this behavior. This was a toxic home, a toxic environment. Is it any wonder how these boys turned out? That they were willing to kill the youngest son because of his dreams and the way he probably talked about them? Is it any wonder how they turned out when you look at the way that these women treated each other? The animosity, the hatred, the one-upmanship, the back and forth that is going on year after year after year in this home? Is it any wonder the way that these men turned out? Not a great environment. Imperfect people. And yet, all these people, we don't know a whole lot about two servant wives. But they produce children as well. And God still used all of these women to father a great multitude. Or to mother, I should say. A great multitude. To produce the promised nation of Israel. Some pretty horrible people. But yet God delights in using imperfect people. Jacob, we know, is imperfect. We've talked about him. But, but even Leah and Rachel, imperfect people. You've probably seen 
the list or the meme somewhere. But God is definitely in the habit of using imperfect people in Scripture. I'll just read through a few of them. You're probably very familiar with this list. We've seen Noah. What'd he do wrong? Became a drunkard. But yet God used him to save the world. The few people that would carry on the promise of a Messiah. Jacob is a deceiver, and yet God used him to be the father of God's chosen people, whose name later would be changed to Israel, the name of God's chosen people. Moses was a murderer, and yet God used him to rescue his people from slavery and bondage after 400 years. Gideon was a scaredy cat, yet God used him to rescue his people from his enemies. Rahab was a prostitute, not even a not even a child of Israel. And yet she was used to rescue the spies from being captured so that they could return with the report. David was a murderer and an adulterer. And yet what is he known as? A man after God's own heart. And he's part of the line of Christ. Jonah ran from God, and yet he preached one of the greatest revivals in the Old Testament. The Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well was divorced. Not once, not twice. How many times? Five times. And living with another guy. And yet God used her testimony to bring an entire city to meet Christ. Peter denied Christ and yet he became one of the most outspoken preachers in the book of Acts. He was the first one to interact and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. The disciples ran in fear when Christ was arrested but yet they are the ones who turn the world upside down with the gospel. Paul was a murderer. Yet God used him to write half the New Testament. Half of the instruction that we look to today for how to live from a murderer. Not just any murderer, but a murderer who is murdering the church. God uses imperfect people and he delights in using imperfect people. Thirdly, God delights in using broken people. Our passage ends with this statement about Rachel, verse 22. It says, Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. God delights in using broken people. And there's a couple of different ways that I even look at this. He delights in using broken people physically. Has he not done that in the past to this point, especially with women? He's used broken 
People like Sarah. People that we would look at and say they're broken. Unable to have children. Especially in that day and age, it was huge for you to be a barren woman. And not in a good way. They were, they were considered broken. They were often considered cursed by God if they were not able to bear children. And yet God uses Rachel and her barrenness to then produce a son. And this son is going to become, in many ways, a picture of Christ. He is going to be one who suffers when he shouldn't. He's going to be one who is in prison, enslaved, who is um, probably beaten, who is uh, taken advantage of. He's going to be one who then rises to the ranks, the one who God uses to save Egypt, but more importantly then to save his chosen people. Rachel, a broken woman that God uses. Yes, broken physically. He's used other people with physical issues. I think of Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh and we don't know exactly what that was, but it was most likely a physical thing that he dealt with. Some people think it was even a a deformity, something that possibly could have even uh, hindered the way that he was able to interact with people. And yet God used him to spread the gospel throughout all the known world to the Gentiles, to give us half of the New Testament. God used him, a broken person, physically. I think of all the different miracles that Christ did when he was here on earth. So many that he healed physically. Why? Yes, because he loved them. Yes, because he had compassion on them. But most importantly, so that his glory would be proclaimed. In fact, he even tells us that. If you remember, we were going through the book of John and we came to the, the blind man. And, they, and the disciples asked, why was this man born blind? Is it because of his parents' sin or because of his own sin? And Jesus said, neither. He was born blind for one purpose, so that God's glory can be proclaimed. Because I'm going to heal him. God delights in using broken people, but not just broken people physically. I think even more, he delights in using broken people spiritually. There are a couple times in this passage that we see both Leah and Rachel. Again, I would not call them godly people, but they certainly understood who God was. And they certainly understood that he was sovereign and that he is in control and that he deserved praise. We see that every time a child is born, there's praise that is directed to God. So they have some relationship of some sort with God. But it's interesting, a couple different times in verse 17 and in verse 22, we see this phrase that God listened to Leah. And then God listened to Rachel says that God remembered and then he listened to Rachel. Scripture indicates for us here that there was a heart cry being made by both of these women to God. 
Now we can sit here and we can debate whether that heart cry uh, prayer probably continually for year after year after year, especially for Rachel, considering she is she's the last one to give birth. All these years probably spent crying out to God, give me children. Give me children. And yes, there, I, I guarantee you that there were selfish reasons involved. Absolutely. Because they're imperfect people. But there was a brokenness as well. An understanding that God is the only one that can take care of us. And we see here that God has been listening to the cry of these women. Brokenness. Can't help but think of David's words, broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We may think of ourselves as broken physically. Maybe you um, have some sort of physical ailment that prevents you from being able to do things that others can do. Maybe you're just getting up a little bit further in years and can't move as well, or maybe you can't get out as much. Whatever the case may be, maybe feel broken to some extent physically. Dave looks a little broken just because he's got that castle and he's sling on. You're fixed on now, brother, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's a brokenness physically, but often is it not that we are broken spiritually? Have you had those times in your life of just crying out to God because you have nowhere else to turn? Because you don't know how to handle this situation. You don't know how you're going to make it through this problem. And maybe sometimes it's even for selfish reasons. But yet God delights in using broken people. He delights in using the undesirable. He delights in using the imperfect. He delights in using the broken. One final point I just want to make here before we close out. Just to kind of wrap all this up, a thought that I had as I was thinking through all these things. But those of whom man expects the least are often those for whom God can do the most. Have you thought about that? Those whom man expects the least are often those whom God, through whom God can do the most. Because in the end, it's not Leah or Jacob or Rachel or Zilpa, or Bilha, I can't remember her name, something like that. <laughs> it's none of these people who are really accomplishing anything in this story of benefit or good, is it? It's God. But he's choosing to do it through them because God loves them. He desires to use the undesirable. He desires to use the imperfect. He desires to use the broken because when he does that, he gets the glory. He gets the glory. Because we can't pat any of these people on the back. All those people that we listed before who were imperfect people, we can't pat them on the back because they were simply sinners that God used 
in a mighty way. One last verse that I'd like to share with you that kind of wraps up this thought from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31 says, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. Again, who are the Corinthians? If we, if we bag on a church in the New Testament, which one is it usually? The Corinthians, is it not? They had two letters. And there's some pretty strong things in those two letters that Paul has to, has to take care of when he writes to these churches. And so of any churches that we would think of as kind of, you know, not, not the darling church, it would be Corinthians. But yet, where do we find this passage? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts Boasts in whom? The Lord. Can you come away from a passage with so much bickering and fighting and anger and, and drama with hope? Absolutely. Because it's not about them. It's about God. And despite all that stuff, God still desired to use them to bring about his plan and to glorify himself. And we can have hope in that as well today. Because in spite of the failures that we have as imperfect people, in spite of the way that other people view us, potentially as undesirable people, in spite of our physical and even spiritual standing before God as broken people, God desires to use those type of people because it's those people that bring him the most glory. Because somebody who has everything, somebody who has it all together and does a great thing, they tend to get the glory because we expect that of them, do we not? We expect somebody with all the, the opportunities and the privilege and the ability to be able to do great things, but we don't expect that of Lemons, of losers, of nobodies. And that's why God uses them. So if you came in this morning, maybe feeling like, can God really use me? Maybe even this morning you've messed up, you've sinned. You've fallen back into a habit that you know is wrong. Can God still use you? Absolutely. And he desires to use you because it is through you that he gets the most glory. Is that not a joyful thing? Can we not walk away this morning with hope? I hope we can.
Father, we thank you that you are sovereign and that you are God and that you are working in spite of us. But not just in spite of us, but you are working through us in spite of us. We do not deserve to be able to participate in what you are doing, and yet you have called us to do just that. And we can do nothing but look up to you and lift our hands and praise you and thank you for the opportunity to participate in your kingdom. Help us not to ever lose sight of that. Help us never to become so big and full of ourselves that we forget, as Paul reminded the Corinthians, where we came from. That we are nobodies, that we are sinners. That we don't deserve anything that you've done for us, that we don't deserve to be a part of anything that you've done through us, and yet you choose and desire to do just that. We thank you for that, and we praise you for that. And we glorify you for that this morning. Thank you for letting us be a part of your plan of redemption. Help us to be a better part. Help us to be faithful, to fulfill the part of your plan that you've called us to, no matter where you've planted us. And may you truly be glorified in how we live. For it's in Christ that we pray. Amen.